0: Well, good morning. Good to be together, isn't it? It's a good thing. Well, last week we um, began to look at this task that we've been given by the Lord, this singular focus that he gave to his disciples, and not just to them, but to us as well, to go and to make disciples. And so last week, we talked about the fact that that is the task. And, and next week, we're going to be talking uh, about how it is we go about that. What does that look like to go and to make disciples? Um, but this week, this week, we're going to talk about what it means to, to be a disciple. Because really, to make disciples, we have to first ourselves be disciples I was thinking about this this week, and I was thinking about just the, um, the phenomenal importance, the, the outlandish um, significance of what happens when someone gets saved. I mean, it, outwardly, that could happen, and you wouldn't even know it. I mean, the person next to you. Uh, for all you know, maybe during this time of worship, the, the Lord spoke to their heart and uh, there in the quietness of their heart, a transaction took place with the Lord and they got saved and And you might not even be any the wiser. You might not even know that that happened. And yet what took place in that moment was something so stupendous, so outlandish that all of all of heaven took notice it was something that that changed not just the the trajectory of that person's life and i mean we're thankful for those kinds of changes i mean when a real grouch comes to christ and they actually become pleasant to be around well praise the lord for that huh And you and I, we can think about our lives before we came to Christ and what a train wreck we were. And what we were heading for in the living of our lives was just absolute disaster. And then Christ gets a hold of us. And those who are living lives of immorality turn and begin to to live a, a biblically moral life. Those who are wasting themselves upon things that that won't matter one minute after they die. Begin to to live lives that will be eternally significant, and we're we're thankful for that. But the thing that we can't see is that that person's eternal destiny changes in the most radical matter that you can imagine. Someone is is changed from having a destiny of eternal suffering in hell to having a destiny of eternal pleasure at God's right hand. That's amazing. It's beyond, I think, our ability to truly comprehend. In fact, it's such a change. It's such a radical dynamic that you would almost expect that, that when someone gets saved, that trumpets would begin to blare, that, that the lights would begin to flash, that, uh, that angels would appear and rejoice. And I'm sure they do rejoice. They just don't appear before us to do it. it you would think it would almost make more sense that when someone got saved, that they would just be gone. It'd be like, oh, where'd he go? He must have gotten saved. I heard that happens. (laughs) You know, you get right with God and pretty much the rest of this life, is you're just there with him. But that isn't what happens, is it? That isn't how it plays out. Rather, the Lord has given us a task to do, right? He's given us a job and he's left us here to do it. There are many things that we will do for all of eternity. We will worship him. We will love him. But it is only in this life, it is only in this world that we have been given the task to be his representatives, to be his ambassadors to a world that has rejected him. So we've got this job to do. But it seems that the church has forgotten. The church has forgotten that we've got a task that we've got a purpose that we've got a job so last week we talked about what that job is and and this week uh, we're going to begin to talk about uh, what it means to not only make disciples but first to be a disciple because to make a disciple what is a disciple well a disciple is a learner right Uh, Very literally, that word disciple, it just means to be a learner. You're someone who is learning. And so in order to make learners, you've got to first be a learner yourself, right? Before you can go out and make disciples, you've got to become a disciple so that you can then turn and share with others who don't yet know what it is that you have come to know and experience of the Lord himself. Our job, what you and I are to be doing is we are to be very simply and honestly sharing with those amongst whom we live, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, the, the, the person that you're pumping gas next to at Costco. You're, you're going to share with those who, who surround you in this life about the one who has transformed not only your life, but your heart. That's really a, a significant part of all this. I mean, it's pretty amazing when lives get changed. I mean, for for some of us, uh, before we come to Christ, our, our lives are just an incredible train wreck. And, and after Christ, we're a, a much smaller train wreck. Um, <laughs> but the transformation can be Quite astounding, can't it? And yet the transformation of a life is nothing compared to the transformation of a heart. As we are welcomed back into a right relationship with the God who created us and loves us, and who put on human flesh that he might go to the cross and bear our sin on our behalf. That's a powerful thing. That's. That's an amazing thing. And that's what it is that we get to share uh, with others around us. Now, a lot of times when we think about sharing with others our faith in Christ, what we think about is we think about sharing a a prefabricated presentation with them, right? We're going to share the four spiritual laws. We're going to draw out the chasm illustration. We're going to share the Roman road, whatever it is, whatever tool you might have in your pocket. And by the way, it's good to have tools. It's good to have tools in your pocket. Those are helpful, but... But really, the heart, the meat of what we're sharing with these people is what we have experienced and what we have come to know about our Savior. And that means this. Before you can make disciples, you must be a disciple. And when I say that, I'm talking about more than just being someone who is a part of this Christian culture uh, within which we live. I'm talking about more than just attending church. By the way, that is a terrible phrase. You should never attend church. You should participate in church, or let's take one better. You should be church. As you gather, you should be church. Just attending that there are no star charts in heaven that you're, you know. Oh, he's there. Okay, well, three more and he's in, right? No, that isn't how it works. That isn't it at all. Uh, but it, you know, and it isn't just that that a life that was immoral becomes moral. That there, there, those are good changes. Those are, are are valuable things, but they're not the core. The core is that you and I come to a place where we are in relationship with the God from whom we rebelled. That we make a choice to submit ourselves to him and to what it is that he has spoken to us in his word Jesus talks about this he he talks about it in what he prays for his disciples in John 17 There in John 17 picture this Jesus is praying he's speaking to the Father and he is praying for his guys for his disciples and he prays father sanctify or cleanse them by the truth Your word is truth. Jesus prays for his disciples that they would be cleansed, they would be sanctified, and the tool that God would use would be his word. And so that's how it works for us as well. It is through our hearing and accepting of the word of God that the Lord cleanses or sanctifies us. It's how he confronts and how he replaces the lies of the enemy with his eternal truth. And so, to be a disciple you and I, we've got to begin to know God's word. That's why we take so much time in, in looking at the word of God. That's why it matters so deeply what the word of God says, because we've got to begin not just to read it, but to study it, to understand it, and to allow it to affect us so so that we end up living lives that are in compliance with the Word of God. But it isn't just about knowing what the Bible says and and agreeing with it, right? I mean, we've all met people who knew what the Bible said, they would agree with what the Bible said, and yet, as you would come to know them, it became very evident that they didn't know Jesus. It's very possible to be in that place. And in fact, Jesus talks about this. And in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about those who, even though they, they knew about him and they did his things, yet he did not know them. These are, are terrifying words to hear from the mouth of the Savior. Uh, listen to what Jesus says. He says, on that day, many will say to me, It would be horrifying if Jesus said, on that day, there will be a couple. I'd be thinking, am I one? It would be awful enough if Jesus said, on that day, there will be a few. But the Lord says this, on that day, there will be many. There will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord. They're ones who are calling him Lord. They, they have correct theology in that sense. They are declaring him to be Lord, and yet... They say, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? They did his stuff. And yet here's, listen to what Jesus says. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Wow. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If we are going to follow Christ, we will have to actually come to know Jesus. We need to know him, not like we know math or history, not, not in the way that we know facts or concepts, but in the way that we know those who are closest to us in this life. So how do we do that? Well. Knowing Christ is much like knowing any other person. We are going to need to spend time with him. We are going to need to to listen to him as we read his word. And that means that that the way that we read the Bible, it's got to begin to change. And we're no longer reading it like a textbook, searching out answers or facts, but rather we are reading it looking for relationship, looking to be reminded of his love for us, and as we read it, receiving from him and accepting from him those things that he would speak about us. Um, Many years ago, I uh, led a, a team into India, and we were gone for over two weeks, and it was back... Um, when international cell phones weren't a thing and email was harder to, to get a hold of and there was no such thing as social media. Dark ages, basically. And um, we didn't have any of that. But what I did have was this incredibly faithful and efficient assistant who, um, unbeknownst to me, um, I think it was like every other day of the trip, Um, when the group would gather for breakfast, she brought to the table a letter that my wife had given her. And so every couple of days, I'm getting a letter from my wife while we're traveling throughout India. And man, I would crack open those letters um, to get all the facts and to find answers and to, to, to know all the details so that I would be prepared when the pop quiz came when I got home, right? No, that wasn't it at all. I mean, she'd written these before I even left on the trip because they had to go in, the, in my assistant's suitcase. You know. And it's, I wasn't reading them to get facts. I was reading them to be reminded of the one who loved me. I was r- reading them to be reminded of home and of family, those things that I held dear and so, too, as we come to the scriptures, oh, there, there's plenty of facts we need to know, and there, there are truths that need to not only be comprehended, but then enacted into our lives. But, but as we read about the Savior, we need to do more than learn about him. We need to come to know him. And we need to digest the sentence, Jesus loves you, not only to understand the fact that it is love that is being talked about, that it is Jesus his doing the loving and that you are the target of that love. But we need to let it soak in that we might come to understand in our heart of hearts that I'm loved and that I'm loved by Jesus. We've got to not only come to know about Christ, but we truly have to come to know him. And and as we we do that, uh, we will begin to open up not only our mind as we enter into times of worship and of study of the word, but our hearts as well. It means that we will begin to experience life together with Christ, Learning to trust him. And what I mean by that is that we will become willing to trust him enough to put ourselves in situations where if he doesn't come through, yeah, it's not going to end well. And I don't mean pushing out into into some thing where we are testing God and you know, throwing ourselves in front of a truck to see if God will somehow miraculously save us. That's going to end very quickly and very badly but instead being willing to step out in faith when God calls us and to live our lives in a way that is is counter to everything that this world is about and that this world is built upon. And being willing to, to put ourselves out there to where we are dependent upon him and reliant upon him and coming to know His faithfulness. You know, that's the only way you learn that someone is faithful is by trusting them. So I was doing youth ministry many, many years ago before the dark ages, and we were getting ready to go on a mission trip. And so we're doing all these team building exercises with the kids and um, had this one kid in the group. His name was Corey as well. Like me, he wasn't the brightest in the group. So um, we were going to do a trust fall. You know what a trust fall is. So the group all gathers together, and they extend their arms, and then you fall backwards into their arms. And so we had this ledge that was, yeah, it was about six feet up. And so Corey, go on up there, and, I, and we're going to do a trust fall. Well, Corey had done this before. Um, and, and so I turned my back on him, mistake number one. And I begin to explain to the group how a trust fall works. And about halfway through the ex- explanation, it was interrupted, by him falling to the ground right in our midst. I mean, in no ready, set, go, nothing, he just bam to the ground. He he was made of rubber and he was fine, but um, he was young, he healed mostly. (laughs) He learned right there, something that was very true. He could not trust us, (laughs) not one bit. But he learned that. And and you and I, we've got to learn that we can trust Jesus. And the only way that we're going to learn that is by stepping up to the ledge, turning around and falling back. And going through that experience of living in the midst of his faithfulness. That's how we come to know who Christ is. That's how we learn to live our life his way. And not only his way, but to live our life for him. That's how we learn to to begin to give up our rights and even our life and our ways and our preferences. And not only to do life the way that he wants us to do life, but to begin to do life not for us, but to do it for him. That's a big difference right there, isn't it? I think that that, that's one a lot of times we miss. We think that we're supposed to live our life for ourselves, but just do it his way. Which means do it clean. You know, don't 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 rip anyone off. Be, be a good person in the midst of living your life for yourself. But what we are called to is something far greater than that. It's something that, that Christ talks about with, with his disciples in Mark chapter 8. I encourage you read this, this passage on your own. Let me give you just a, a little picture of it here. In Mark 8, beginning in verse 34, it says that Jesus called the crowds to him along with his disciples, and Jesus is going going to talk to them about what it means to follow him. Now, think about this if you're one of his disciples. Jesus calls the crowds to him along with his disciples and says, if anyone wants to follow me. If I were the disciples, I'd be thinking, are we being replaced? (laughs) I mean, why are we in this conversation? We are already following you. But Jesus says, here is the thing, I'm gonna give you the heart of what it means to follow me. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says, deny yourself, you give up you. It's no longer about you, you take up your cross. And and Jesus and his disciples, there was no no mystical, uh, you know, kind of, magical feel of that phrase of take up your cross. They had seen men who had taken up their cross. You know, in Jesus's lifetime, just outside of the village uh, where he grew up, just down uh, a little ways from that village, all along one of the main roads there through that region, the Romans had crucified thousands of men all along that road who had been part of a rebellion. They had all seen those men. They had all seen them hanging on crosses. They had seen them carrying crosses. They had seen many, many others suffer that same fate. You see, they knew, these disciples, they knew that if anyone took up their cross, the rest of their day was booked. And the rest of their day was the end of their life. That they were coming to the end of them. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it means the end of your life. It means the end of living for you. And instead, you're going to follow me. You're going to live for me. You're not only going to live my way, but you are going to begin to live your life for the benefit of the gospel. He, he says this he, a little bit later. He says that for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Do you get what he's saying there? What Jesus says here is that the point isn't for you to survive. That's not the point. The point is for you to expend this life for the benefit of the gospel. We do all sorts of things in order to stay alive, don't we? We eat kale. Not sure it's worth it. You know, you get older, you begin talking about things like roughage and fiber, right? You know, just to stay alive, to keep the system going, right? But have you noticed this? No one gets out alive. Everyone dies. Everyone dies, whether you eat kale or not. And what Jesus is saying here is. Listen, you can try to save your life, but guess what? You're going to die. So why not expend your life instead for the sake of the kingdom? You know, you get together with a financial planner and they'll ask you, okay, so, um, you know, How much do you make? And how much have you saved? And um, when do you want to retire? And what do you want that retirement to look like? You know, do you want to retire on a yacht in the Bahamas or a trailer in Rathdrum? You know, (laughs) what are we shooting for here? Well, what's the goal that we're going after? But what they're asking you is, and what they're going to help you do is figure out how to live your life in order to benefit yourself in order to fulfill the goals that you have for yourself. But what Jesus says is this. No longer live your life for self, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, and begin to live your life no longer for your benefit, but now for the advancement of the kingdom of God. You're going to live for a whole different reason. Because you see, the disciple lives for their master. The disciple willingly expends this life. He takes up his cross in order to serve the king of kings. Okay, that's, that's great theoretically, but what does that look like practically? You know, what are some of the things specifically that you and I are going to, to need to embrace in order to, to follow Christ, to be his disciple? And by no means are, are the things that we're going to talk about this morning the only things that we could talk about. I don't know if you've, you've read the contract between you and Jesus, but there are no stipulations that say, okay, Jesus, you can do um, three of these five things, but no more. And um, by the way, you know, this contract runs out then we will have to renegotiate what you're allowed to do and not. No, 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 The contract between you and Jesus says, um, you're saved and Jesus is king. And that's it. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the whole thing. He has complete sovereignty, not only over this world, but over our lives. But I think a couple of things that would be really good for us to think about as far as what it is that he calls us to as his disciples and things that will really have an impact on our ability to then make disciples of others. Let's start with this one, integrity. We, we've got to be people of integrity. What I mean by that is that we have to genuinely seek out to live that which we say we believe. We've got to genuinely seek out, to live out what it is that we say that we believe. And that will mean that we are going to begin to seek to live lives that are holy, that are built according to the things that God has said that we should do. We'll choose to do right, even when no one will know the difference. We will begin to live our lives in imitation of Christ that we will live selflessly and sacrificially. But before we get too far into this, let me clarify something. I want to be very clear about this. We are not doing this in order that we might be saved. Okay? You know, I'll be good enough, and then Jesus will let me in. I'll be good enough, and then Jesus will like me. No, that isn't it. We're not doing this in order to be saved. We are doing this in response To being saved. We are doing this in response to Christ's free gift of salvation that he has given to us. Having been loved greatly, we are now freely responding to him in reciprocal love. And that love, that love is expressed, Jesus says, by obeying him. Look at at John chapter 14, there in verse 15, Jesus puts it so simply. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So the, the follower of Christ, this integrity includes obedience. It means that, that I am really going to seek to do the things that I say that I believe. I believe that God is the one who should determine my path, and therefore I'm going to seek to obey him. And, and, and we're not just talking about behavior modification, okay? Okay. We're not just talking about something that happens on the surface, you know, jumping hoops, but rather we're talking about an outward change that is birthed in an inward transformation. Not just compliance, but but rather the remaking of our hearts and our minds by the grace of God. It, it is a, a full and an unconditional surrender of our will to the Savior, it is a, a a process that is so radical, that is so completely life-altering, that it is absolutely beyond our ability to accomplish it on our own. And so the Apostle Paul describes it this way: Second Corinthians five seventeen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. What Paul says is that that this is a work that God does in us. In speaking to the Philippians, Paul explains to them, he says, Hey, listen, God is going to give you not only the desire to do this, but the ability to do it. And God is going to promise that he is going to complete this work in you, even though it's going to take until Christ comes back to get there. What the word is telling us is that this is a work that God does in us. It's a work that we submit ourselves to, that we allow to take place within us. Now, this new obedience to Christ, it comes from a a truly submitted heart, which, honestly, that is an entirely new experience for us, isn't it? Because by nature, we are, man, we are so rebellious. Isn't that just true? I mean, any opportunity to rebel, we don't let that go to waste. Any authority that gets extended over us, man, we just, we bristle at it. It doesn't matter whether it's government or a boss, a, a teacher, or a parent or a coach. It doesn't matter whether it's rules or standards or, or speed limits, or as we like to call them, speed suggestions. <laughs> we are convinced that those may be for other people who are not as skilled of drivers as we are. Uh, But, you know, those may be generally accepted norms, but it's not something that we have to obey. But for the follower of Christ, there is a radical, divinely granted willingness to begin to live a different way To live with a submissive heart. And that submissiveness, it doesn't stop with our submission to God's word because the Bible speaks to us about being in submission in so many other ways. You know, we, we begin with being submitted to God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us why. It's because scripture is inspired by God. It is authored by God. Oh yes, it was written by the hands of men, but it wasn't the men who determined what was written. Uh, that the scriptures were were God's work. And because of that, they are profitable. They're useful in our lives. They they teach us how to live. They they rebuke us when we get off course. They stop us in our tracks. They correct us. They, they, They correct our course to get us back where we need to be. And they train us in living in righteousness. God uses his word to reshape us, to make us less and less rebellious. The end result is that we end up being people with submissive hearts. And and so we read in Ephesians 5.21 that we are to submit one to another for the sake of Christ. Oh, we read in Romans 13, it's everyone's favorite verse, right? Especially these days, uh, that we are to submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Oh, here's one that I'm sure it's on all of your living rooms, uh, that we submit to church leadership, right? I mean, you didn't even know that was in the Bible. Hebrews 13, you can look it up for yourself. But we become these people that instead of being by nature rebellious, we are by transformation people who have submissive hearts. And the fruit of that is that we obey the Savior. We live with integrity. There's a second thing that that I think we should talk about. And it's this, that the disciple is also to be in relationship. To be a disciple and to make disciples by by definition, means that we have got to be in, in, in relationship. Oh, sure, yes, we are, we are going to be in relationship primarily with God. We are in a relationship with the Savior, but then we have also got to be in relationship uh, with each other. And I understand the dynamic because when we come to faith, we come to faith very much on our own, very much as individuals, Right? You know, when we come to Christ, we come independent of anyone else. We, we each must make our own decision to submit to the Savior. And yet, once we, we make that very personal, very individual decision, we become connected with other believers. And we become connected in very significant and lasting ways, so much so that Romans 12:5 describes us as different parts of one single body." Paul writes, "In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another." Now, you look around this room. And we are a divergent group, aren't we? You might say we're a divergent mess. We, we, are, we are as different from each other as a kidney is from a foot. But you know what? We're all su- also supposed to be as connected to each other as a kidney is to a foot. We need each other. Whether we realize it or not, we need each other. My foot, my look, my look at my kidney and think, "What? that's gross. No wonder you keep it inside. It's all mushy and yuck. I don't I don't, I want nothing to do with that kidney. That'd be a bad decision for that foot, wouldn't it? Because that foot is not going to last long without a kidney. So to us. And you might look across the room and go, gross. Or they might be looking at you. You may be looking across the room and thinking, yeah, I don't need that, uh-uh. But you know what? Whether you realize it or not, the dynamic is that we are one body and we do need each other. There was a guy at first service who was visiting and he's part of a biker club in Spokane called the Soul Patrol. And so, yeah, he's, he's a biker dude and he's wearing his leathers, and I was talking to him as he left, and, and I, I looked at him and said, hey, I used to be a part of Soul Patrol. I might as well have told him I used to be an astronaut. <laughs> he's looking at me and thinking, I don't think so. Now we have standards, and no, yeah, yeah, no, no, know. uh uh-uh. But I was. I, I was the overseeing pastor for this ministry. And I know all these guys that he knows. We need each other. They need pencil neck geeks like me. And I have in my life found it very convenient to have some rather ape-like large men who I am connected with, who will have my back when my mouth runs a bit too much. We need each other and not just in goofy ways. Though we may be different from each other we need each other now maybe maybe I haven't convinced you of that even if you don't perceive your need for others I want you to understand something very clearly it is God himself who is building us together who is putting us together it is his plan for us to be connected with each other uh, look at first Peter chapter 2 there. It talks about the fact that God is building us together. It's his project, his desire. And Peter says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now he mixes his metaphors there and that drives me crazy. But what he is saying is this, God is building us together. We are living stones, each of us. And it is God himself who is putting us together and building this structure for his glory. If you fight being connected to each other, you are not just fighting other stones, you are fighting the builder. It is God's plan for us to be connected. And that makes sense, because the New Testament is chock full of instructions that tell us how it is that that we are supposed to be with each other. But I have to be honest, as I, I read what the New Testament says about our relationships with each other, I have to admit that generally what we experience in our relationships with each other is nothing more than a very thin shadow of what Scripture talks about. According to Scripture... Our relationships are to be much deeper, much more passionate, much more significant than what we generally experience. Listen to what First Peter chapter 1 says. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. Love, love one another constantly. And and other translations, uh, they phrase it even more intensely. Uh, One translation says, love one another deeply from the heart. Another one says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Or, Or one says, love one another fervently. And you want to see a men's Bible study group get uncomfortable? Read this passage. Okay, men, we are to <clears throat> love each other fervently. <laughs> what? I don't even like sitting this close to you, you know? And yet there is supposed to be a depth and an intensity in our relationships with each other. We are not to be mere passing acquaintances who are, or are just struggling to remember names rather we are to have a connection that is deep, earnest, fervent, and we are to be connected not just on a cognitive level, but on a heart level. I'm not only supposed to know what's going on in Jeff's life and think about that, but I'm to have a heart connection with what's going on in his life. I'm not just supposed to be uh, aware of of Mike and and his life, but I'm to have a heart connection with what's going on in his life. That's far greater than what I think we typically experience. I'll be honest with you, that kind of connection is never going to be built while you sit there and listen to me that kind of connection can get just the the smallest bit of a start at at church barbecues, sure. It begins to to blossom in small group Bible studies, yes. It, It really begins to take root as you sit down over a cup of coffee or over dinner together. But even then, those kind of deep and abiding relationships They don't happen automatically, not even when you pursue them. Not unless you add some rather significant ingredients to the mix. And again, I'm sure there are other things we could talk about, but there are a couple things here that I think we would do well to pay attention to. And the first one is this, humility. Humility. We've got to bring humility to the table. Humility, it's like a greenhouse for relationships. It provides a safe place for them to, to, to sprout, to begin to take root and begin to thrive. Humility means that, well, you don't have all the answers, so you probably don't need to do all the talking. Humility means that, that you're not the important one there, that you're probably not the one in charge there. Humility means that you're there to serve the other, to listen to the other, and to value their thoughts even when they think something different than you do. First Peter 5 calls us all to humility. Listen to what he, he says. He says, In the same way you who are younger be subject to the elders, all of you all of you, okay, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. When it comes to our relating to each other and with each other, we must clothe ourselves with humility. Like a greenhouse, humility lets relationships advance into significance. And here's why. I think it is because humility allows transparency or maybe we should call it sincerity. You See, sincerity and, and transparency being real, that, that's the other key ingredient that I think we would do well to pay attention to. Sincerity, it, it doesn't hide its flaws. It doesn't camouflage its failures. Transparency means letting reality be seen, even when it isn't all that pretty. Scripture calls us to this as well. To the extent that in James chapter 5, much to our alarm, it says this, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. That's really in the Bible. I mean, you can check. You can look at that. It really says that we are really supposed to be honest with each other or we're supposed to be real about what it is that we're struggling with and how it's going. We're to have relationships within the body that are so significant, so safe, that when we sin, when we fall flat on our faces, we can tell them about it. And their response to us, will be simply that they will pray for us. And when we begin to be that real with each other, it will change what happens when we come together. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being in fellowship, right? We're really focused on that, I think, these days, rightly so. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 20, 24 and twenty-five. That that's on on, on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, it says there, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. But but understand this: this isn't just about being in one room together. This is about what happens when we are in that room together. What what? What the author of Hebrews is talking about here is what I would call true spiritual fellowship. I've kind of renamed it because in the church today, we consider any time that we get together to be fellowship. We watch football, well, that's fellowship. We eat hot dogs, that's fellowship. It's also unhealthy, but we do it anyway, right? You know, it's just like, hey, if if, if we're together, then it's fellowship. And yet here when when scripture talks about fellowship, it talks about something significant that happens. It it talks about uh, us investing in each other and encouraging and even challenging each other to move forward in our spiritual life and to be the people that God has called us to be. But for true spiritual fellowship to take place, we've got to walk in humility and sincerity with each other. But when we do that, when we come together in humility and sincerity and we begin to experience true spiritual fellowship, when all of that is present and working within the relationships of the body, man, look out, look out, because things are going to change. They're going to be different than they've been. I don't know about you, but I want things to be different than they've been. I want our experience together to be deeper and richer and more impactful. And I want us to be more and more prepared and equipped and strengthened in our role as ambassadors for Christ. When we begin to live this way, here's what's going to happen. Is there is going to very organically grow up within this group a love for each other that will make it absolutely evident to everyone who sees us that we belong to Jesus. That's that's what we need, isn't it? So they will look at us and go, man, I don't know what it is they've got, but it's something I don't see anywhere else. And it's certainly not them, because I've met a few of them and they're not that together. But there is a dynamic there that is present that is not of this world. When we do that, we're gonna find that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is radically transformed within our lives. And we are gonna find a radical transformation in our effectiveness to go and to make disciples as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you that, that it is your desire for these things to be active in our lives. And so because of that, you are working that this isn't just a self improvement plan this isn't just something that is is all up to us but lord as we are willing and as we cry out to you to to work in us and to change us and to transform us that you you really will you really will engage with us in this and so lord we look to you we know that we are too weak we are too distracted we are uh, we are many things but we are not capable of getting this done. And so, Lord, we look to you and we ask that you would intervene in our lives. I ask, Lord, that you would intervene in us as a church body, that we would be transformed, and that we might know you more and we might be more effective in sharing that with others. Work that in us, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.